so, you know, that's what I hope to try and present at Paradigm Symposium is kind of, I'll be speaking Sunday morning, and it will hope to tie, so you guys got to get up early enough. You, you've got to be down there. Graham, I know you will, but Darren... Yeah. Da- Welcome back to the America Show. We're going to be chatting with Micah Hanks a little bit later. Uh, but first, as always, the one and only Graham Barclay Dunlop. That's enough of the middle name, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should drop the first. Name. You're supposed to ask me how I'm doing too. Oh, there's no supposed to. There's Bar- no script. Barkley was going to be. Are you saying I went off script? Barkley was going to be my first name, but my parents it? changed it. Yeah, to Graham. Last minute. Yeah, to Graham. It sounded too like like they thought it been make fun of like bark bark, but you know, of course, Graham instead, was way worse. Instead, so. you got made up for exposing your crotch. <laughs> In your rugby path. So, hey, I feel better, man. I've been back to yoga. I want to tell you about that. Uh, have you? Yeah. I was feeling a little out of shape there, even though I was still doing exercise and shit. But uh, I went back to that hot yoga studio and for the last, like, probably four times in the last week and a half or so. I do yoga sometimes. Way better. Do you? I don't know. I stretch on my floor. Is that yoga? Is, like, any stretching yoga? Sure. Like, if I just stretch. So, this place. My uh, yoga in. Sure. Yoga. This place is so, uh, I it's got pretty one intense. Move. Okay, what's your move? I lie on my back, and I stretch out as far as I can, and then I relax. Yeah, that's that's okay. And I stretch out as far as I can, and I relax. Really? Well, I watch TV a couple of times because it helps my back. Yeah, it would. You should go to real yoga. I should take you there one day. Do you like sweating, or? I don't know. I'm not going to hot yoga. Because this place no is, this is, this is how intense it is. The the instructor's is it, like Is this the, the same goal? hot yoga you lit the fire at? No, it's a different <laughs> one. The goal <laughs> I do have a bit of a story though. The goal is just to stay in the room. That's how brutal it is. That doesn't sound like fun. Well it it the feeling afterwards is amazing. So um but I was always wondering how, how people uh if they have to hold in farts or not in there. What? If did they, why did you people, fart in there? Yeah, a couple times. Really? Did it smell like shit? No, just that's not just bad. Just you know, it's the sound. The right? worst are the ones when you like have to shit and you let oh, a fart. No, I don't want to get into all that. I just wanted to say, it's. I wonder if everybody else has to hold in gas in yoga because nobody else seems to fart. And if you leave, you're out. You leave and come back. The, the, nobody reacts to it. So you could just go fart in the hall. No, you can't. No, you can't leave. Sorry, you Why can't not? leave the class. You're not you supposed leave, to leave out. the class. You have to ask to go to the bathroom? You, you don't leave class. <laughs> this sounds kind of communistic. I don't know. I'd hold it. I'd say for no other reason than fucking common decency to your fellow humans. You just... You can't, though. You're in all these weird positions. It just comes out. You think I mean to? Does it happen a lot? No, I've heard maybe 10 of them in, in total in my yoga career. From you or from... No, in total. Was this your first offense? No, how did you think? Out of the ten? Six. Eight, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, I don't know. I think you hold it or you leave the room. It's, you can't, I'm telling you. You go into these crazy positions and it just pops out. It doesn't, you know, well, that's you why I'm surprised it doesn't happen more. Maybe you can have an acid on your way home from work on yoga days. You're not so gassy. Like a Tums or something? Yeah. Okay, I'll try that. That's probably good advice. Yeah. Or just leave the room. So do you go is like, is, is there a yoga outfit? <clears throat> what? Is there a yoga outfit? 
Like a speedo? No. <laughs> <laughs> like bicycle shorts kind of things. Yeah, I'm not going to yoga. I'll continue doing my floor move. Okay, you do that. Anything else new? Uh, I liked it when you almost burnt down the hot yoga studio. That was a better yoga story. Yeah, that's a fun one too. That was pretty interesting. You just never went back? You're I know I've never back. been back to that one. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> so that's less offensive to you than farting? Or more offensive? No, I, I guess you lighting can't a fire. It's if you light a fire, just, you gotta go. It's apple. Yeah, I just, no, I just never went back there. It was nothing to do with the fire. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with the fire truck showing up at first. <laughs> Unrelated. Did we tell that story? I don't want to talk about it anymore, but maybe yeah, one we day. we told the hot yoga story. Okay. Yeah, a long time yeah, ago. It was There's long probably time. a lot of people that haven't heard it. I can't believe we talked about that. The long and short of the story was, what was it? You set your towel on the heater? I put my towel on a pot light. And it was smoldering, smoldering through the whole class. And I thought they were pumping like this incense because I smelt the cedar. I'm like, they pumped this <laughs> like essential oils through the, the yoga system. Yeah, this like, this is pretty amazing. Cool. <laughs> and then as soon as the thing ended, this lady gets up. I smell a fire. <laughs> and she points over to me <laughs> and my towels. It's him. <laughs> so I had to chuck it out the window. Like it was like smoldering to the point where it was electrical fire in the, the light. And yeah, it was bad. Classic. Um, yeah, that was a good. That was a fun story. I remember that. I I think you told me the told me it live on air too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably saved it for you. It's always fun when I get to find out about something like that. Oh man. Okay. So I, I just literally picking one out here. You caught me off guard, of course. Um, and I don't know, since this is an episode with Micah Hanks, uh, this is the, uh, profound UFO quote of the week. And, uh, this one's probably fairly, cause I want to actually talk to Mike about this a little bit. So remind me, please. Uh, the one thing about these briefings that never failed to amaze me, although it happened time and time again, was the interest in UFOs within scientific circles. As soon as the word spread that Project 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 Blue Book was giving official briefings, Project what? official briefings to groups with the proper security clearances, we had no trouble in getting scientists to swap free advice for a briefing. I might add that we briefed only groups who were engaged in government work and who had the proper security clearances solely because we could discuss any government project that might be of help to us in pinning down the UFO. Our briefings weren't just squeezed in either. In many instances, we would arrive at a place to find that a whole day had been set aside to talk about UFOs, and never once did I meet anyone who laughed off the whole subject of flying saucers, even though publicly these same people had jovially sloughed off the press. Jovially? Jovially sloughed off the press with answers of hallucinations, absurd, or a waste of time and money. They weren't wild-eyed fans, but they were certainly interested. That was Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, chief of Project Blue Book. Hmm. Which was a scam, wasn't it? No. No. I thought... Oh, well, it was... It depends on how you want to look at it. I want to look at it. We should do it, because uh, there's some interesting things when you look deep into it like this sighting this amazing sighting and then you see what they explained it as and it's like some silly little 
swamp gas explanation. You're like, oh, that really makes sense. Swamp gas is a real thing, you know. <clears throat> um, yeah. I've no so is gram gas, apparently. <laughs> Hot yoga swamp gas? <laughs> so, moral of the story is if you see gram in your yoga class, find a new yoga class. So, I got some feedback uh, for you. Good feedback? Uh, yeah, good feedback. I don't have a lot of bad feedback. Well, I'd like to talk about the ultimate feedback. Shit bag? Do you, do you, uh, do you want to talk about that one or do you want me to? Because I, I, I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit overwhelmed Taking by this. Aback. Yeah. Because, uh, oh man, when you, when you hear stuff like this, it's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing. This isn't actually an email. This is from Don't say M, you say spam. <laughs> this is from your Twitter. This is from uh, Chris George Zuger. Does that make sense? Sure. Your interview with Randall Carlson from Sacred Geo International is one of the definitive top podcast talks of all time. Number 10 out of 10. Um, so that's pretty crazy feedback. Thank you so much, Chris George Zuger. Um, you let the man talk unfiltered and didn't constantly interrupt him with stupidity. No one else does that. So I'm glad you noticed that because we do try and let our guests talk because that's a pet peeve of mine listening to older podcasts that other podcasts. We say we're interrupting for each other. Yeah, exactly. Love to interrupt me. But yeah, so we try and have a conversation. And we try and let them talk. So it's... Uh, <laughs> I remember we got feedback a couple times saying we let the guests ramble on too much. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think once a while ago. Was that a while ago? Yeah. Well, I mean, that happens our, too. We got half a dozen or so negative feedback. That's when you know you're, get, that's when you know you're actually starting to get some reach, though. You haven't, you, haven't started, you haven't started getting anywhere until you start getting hate mail. Well, as soon as you go on YouTube, the hate mail's coming. So <laughs> the trolls are coming from under the bridge. So the thing is, uh, it is hard to do, though. Like, you can't... Uh, you can't let them ramble on too much, right? But sometimes, uh, sometimes you kind of got to cut in. But it's it's nice to try and find a spot. Yeah. What are you doing? Oh. So, I, he, they also said, "Do you want to talk about the collective soul thing?" Until now, Grimerica is a collective soul of podcasts, pretty underrated. So that was Jorge. Yeah, I that's told good. Jorge if you we're think we're gonna send him a shirt. Alrighty, no problem. I think he lives in Ecuador. Shipping might be a bitch, but ah, that's okay. We'll do it. So uh, yeah, I got a couple other things here. There's another, uh, there's another piece of feedback. I think I just lost it. Shit. I think you should talk to my microphone. It's all right. It's a kick and jam. Yeah, that's pretty good, eh? I like that. Who's that? Jingle by Neil Davies. Nice, thanks, Neil. Uh, we got some information uh, from Cody. He sent me a spam. I was recently searching for Robert Shock interviews, and I discovered your show. The Shock interview is great. You also hit me off to Randall Carlson for the first time. Another amazing inter- interview. Keep up the great work. So yeah, tons of uh, tons of good feedback on uh, Randall Carlson's uh, chat. So, uh, Darren. Do you remember I told you uh, we got some information from a local guy in Calgary here about uh, he was telling us about uh, the Big Rock because he was surprised that we hadn't. Uh... Oh, that was Randall Carlson was Big Rock. You're thinking of uh, something else. Oh, no. Yeah, that's right. No, buddy, the floor guy. <clears throat> the floor guy. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, and I was telling him, and he also sent us uh, some information about this other thing called the old old big. Is it called old old, old big? big. Big Which old, is like a kind of like an big Al- old big Alberta big Stonehenge kind of thing or medicine wheel, and I thought I'd already been there. I thought that was the one I'd, I'd went to, but it actually turns out it wasn't. So, and it happens to be that uh, Joanne Bean has been on this podcast before. She's the lady that runs the sweat lodge, and she's uh, um, a healer and all kinds of stuff in the local community here. She's putting on a um, a little retreat in. So this is for people, obviously, that live near Calgary or whatever. And they're going to that uh, medicine wheel. So they're doing a retreat. It's called Grandfather of the Buffalo Retreat. And I'll link to this in the show notes. And it's in uh, Drumheller. I guess you could probably see oh, the robotic go dinosaur thing. I'm going to go to soon to see Are the you, robotic Why don't you go to this then, buddy? You get a t- geological tour of the Badlands, a medicine wheel drum ceremony. You'll feel right at home there, buddy. Healing circles, meditation. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm on that. You don't sound too enthused. Well, I might go. And then, so that, so that, they go to that big hole, and you can only get access through these big people, old. right? You can't big just, old. you can't just walk. Big you can't just walk. Old there. big, old big, whatever it is. So, I've that lost. sounds like a fucking, uh, like a geyser for some reason. Yeah, I think yeah. geyser when I think old big. Yeah, I know what you mean. So anyways, uh, well, I'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, sorry, I got, uh, I kind of lied about going to that thing there. Uh, Brent from Hardwood Floors. You lied to Brent? There he is, yeah. Well, I didn't mean to, but yeah, uh, I thought that was the one. That's it. All trust is lost. Brent will never trust you again. Yeah, he will. Um, Never trust you to begin with. Yeah, Jay Jay Snow sent us uh, pics of uh, Big Rock too. And I went to Big Rock. I did my Randall Carlson homework. It's pretty Snow. amazing. Yeah, Jason. That sent us in the art, too. Yeah, he sent oh, us cool. uh, pictures of Big Rock. Nice. Yeah. He's a big dude. Was he as big as a Big Rock? I don't What? Big as Was in what? Was he in the picture? I, no, I don't think so. No. no. Jason Snow's a big dude. It wasn't like a selfie in front of Big Rock. No, it was just the Big Rock. Selfies are fucked. So we'll have to talk to Randall about that, because that's pretty crazy. That's that erratic train. We'll see him another week. No, two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks Wednesday. Time. Yeah, we should talk about that then. Yeah. Paradigm. Talk about it. Talk about it. Yeah. Paradigm Symposium is October 2nd to 5th. I should actually pull up their tagline. Uh, if, if you don't mind, can you mention some of the speakers while I do that, please? I sure can. Ron, oh, no, Ronald Carson's not a speaker. Oh, he might be. Graham Hancock. He might. Eric Von Daniken, Richard Dolan, John Anthony West, Scotty Roberts, John Ward. David Weatherly, Micah Hanks. Oh, you're getting pretty good off the top of your head there. Thomas Fusco. Thomas B. Oh, Fusco. Yeah. Barry Fitzgerald, Larry Flaxman, Andrew Collins, Chase Klutzky, Dan Madsen, Marie D. Jones. Uh, who else? Nick Redfern. Did you mention that? Rick, Laird, Rick Nedfern. Laird Scranton. So this is uh, the Paradigm Symposium to sum it up. It is the most eclectic gathering of esoteric thinkers and researchers in their fields, history, archaeology, paleocontact, ufology, alternative theory, and metaphysical research, bridging the gap between academic and alternative theory, finding common ground between science and belief. I was thinking today how, how well this symposium fits in with our kind of our style here, eh? Like, I think we go over and above like the the scope of like what Paradigm would do. Like We talk about banksters and some a little bit of political stuff, but... Pretty much, if uh, 
if you'd like to show you like that symposium. Yeah, the symposium. Yeah, fuck two weeks. It'll be a good time. Yeah, so that's October 2nd to 5th in uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, at the Women's Club. Ephraim's coming. Ephraim Palermo. I'll have his book, too. He gets I, signed Ephraim book. <clears throat> yeah, that'll be good. Uh, we have some new countries. Do we? Yeah. Oh, we do, yeah. The hegemony, we promised we mentioned a few. What do we got? We What's got the total? 143. That's crazy. 144, maybe. So this is countries that our Grimerica's uh, hegemony is reaching out to. It's hegemony. We've got to come up with a better name, though. It's a... It's a hegemony? Uh, it's a compassionate hegemony. No, it's not. So we've got Suriname, uh, Kazakhstan, Andorra, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Guadalupe. Uganda. Guernsey. Guernsey, we said St. that. St. Vincent and Grenadine. And... Uh, Sounds like There's a scotch. Probably missing a lot, but we're losing track of how to how to keep up to date on this. So we want to welcome those countries to the Great American Hegemony. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Yeah. Well, fuck, we might conquer yet. <laughs> or we don't conquer. We how many countries are there? Like 100? It's, it's hard to believe how many people have access to the internet now. Yeah, there's a few different numbers. It's anywhere from, I think, 196 to 210. Really? I thought it was only like 170. Yeah, well, we know what you're, uh, oh. we've seen time and time again, your knowledge of the fucking map or the globe, whatever you want to call it. Hey, just because YouTube says it's something doesn't mean it's true, buddy. Just because Graham says it's something, it definitely doesn't mean it's true. <clears throat> if so they you both want... say it's something, it might be something. So you want to talk about the, uh, our new uh, toy? Oculus. Oculus. Are we allowed to say that it? Made us both sick. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, Can you I get mean, sued for okay. that? no, I mean, it's just, no, no, no. It's just, it's pretty intense, right? So we finally were managed to hook up a couple demo games to the Oculus that we got, the DK2. And because uh, we're obviously interested in this whole virtual reality thing. So we didn't play around with it a lot, but uh, it's pretty intense. We did that roller coaster ride, and I wasn't really prepared for. Uh, I think the pro that was what made us sick was the roller coaster ride. Oh, totally. Because I was, I just, I, I went with it the whole time. You I didn't realize and you can't move your head. If you move your yeah. head, the whole game moves. That's... Right? I think that's the fucking problem because <clears throat> your body's not used to like if you turn your head, your vision should turn, and it doesn't. Right. So, and because it, it seems like the ones I felt more at home and the ones where I could kind of look around in a virtual room. Huh. Like the spider one. And I think that might be why there's some sort of fucking disconnect when you're fucking moving your head doesn't make any fucking reaction in your in your field of vision. Yeah, so that maybe that's what it is. I think you're right cuz it did I was playing around with the the visuals there and it uh, definitely by the end of it that was a little wheezy. And I thought <clears throat> I have a pretty strong stomach and I can tackle just about anything so i figured it would be fine but afterwards man it was a weird feeling my stomach was off my head was off yeah it's i think if anybody's gonna try the whole virtual just toe in the water go slow there's no rush yeah it could be i think our computers are kind of shitty for it too <laughs> yeah that's not like we're not gonna gamers be... so i think you know there's probably some latency there yeah. and fucking 
But I really think one of the problems is that fucking thing strapped to your head and you're looking at the exact same thing no matter where your head moves. And some of them. Because some of the demos don't utilize the camera thing that they give you. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Hmm. Whereas the other one, I can turn my head around, look behind me, and it, I look behind me. Are you going to put that video somewhere of you doing that? I don't know if I want to. I don't know. It's pretty funny. I like being anonymous. Yeah. Even though you're, think... you're not really anonymous, Darren. No? Darren Scott Grimes. What the fuck? <laughs> Graham Barclay Dunlop. <laughs> I don't think there's any pictures of me <laughs> out there, though. Can we just post it in the, in the, can we just post it in here, maybe? In the, can you put it in, in backstage for the people? I don't know if I can. We do have a, a mixer. I'll sell it to you. We no, do. I don't know. I'll, maybe we can find some place to put it. Okay. How about fucking, if you really want to see it that bad, fucking email Graham and I'll send it to you. All right. That's a good one. Okay. So I'll send it to you for T and mine for sure. Oh, speaking of for T and mine, we're going to launch the newsletter. I was supposed to do that over the weekend, but I'm going to do that. Oh, good. This yeah, week. that's great. So by the time this comes out, you should be able to go and subscribe to the newsletter. Okay, so there's some other housekeeping issues too we should talk about. So we do have a live chat room. We're experimenting with that. That's mixler.com slash Gramerica, or you can go to the website and, and click on backstage. Yeah, and that'll all be in the newsletter too, now too. So, right. the, so if you sign up for the newsletter, basically you'll get a fucking a reminder every week of who's upcoming, what interviews are upcoming, so you can get in questions if you want to. Past interviews. Past, yeah. Highlights from past interviews. UFO quotes like a week. Yep. Okay. And uh, the other thing that we have now is a voicemail on the, it's just like a voicemail button on the website. Just use your computer. CBNO. CBNO? CBNO. I think that means very good. No, very yes, maybe. Or good, yes, yes, good. I don't know. We'll have to ask RPJ. Mm. Mike would probably know too. So <clears throat> what else do we have to talk about? The money bomb donating. And uh, we've, we've kind of postponed that. So we're going to uh, not postpone the money bomb, but we've rolled it over so that when we give away a minimum of $100, we actually get to keep some from ourselves. Because um, that's what it's all about, trying to support the show, right? And we're giving a little bit, uh, gifting a little bit back to one of our listeners. Yep. So that's a plan there. So I think we, we'll fuck at this rate. It'll be a few months before we give anything away. Yeah. Uh, so subscribe. You can subscribe too. You can donate any amount. Send a postcard in to enter. All kinds of uh, yep. ways to do it. All the options are at grimeamerica.ca slash moneybomb. But uh, yeah, we uh, we always appreciate when you get a subscriber for the uh, five bucks a month. Um, we never sell any content here. So basically, uh, we're looking at a value for value model where if, uh, if you enjoy the show and you like to, to listen every week, then if you can afford it, sign up for that five bucks a month. Just yeah. think how much money you give Starbucks every month. Yeah, it does cost a bit to run this little show of ours. And, uh, more and more. Darren gives you a little, for, I don't know, at least the first 50 or 100 people, he gives a Grimerica email address out. So. Yep, and if you have a Grimerica email address, stay tuned for instructions on how to get it working again. <laughs> it's just, uh, we were going to put the instructions up on how to switch it over, but since we're switching to a different provider or a different host right away, as soon as our buddy Wayne Darnell over at Darnell Digital is done uh, is done doing his thing, we're getting ready to switch the whole site. He's just making sure it's back. The backup is working properly. I think right now before he 
deletes it and mm. reinstalls it. But we're going to be going over to, I think, DreamHost or something like that because they can offer us uh, VPS at a cheaper rate than $80 a month. Uh, so big thanks to Wayne for that. But um, since we're looking at doing that, I think in the next week, he's, uh, you know, there's no point on having the people switch, having you guys switch your emails right now and it's going to work for three or four days and then switch it again. So we're just going to post a full instruction on how to get it working again uh, as soon as Wayne's done. But of course, as an alternative, I you can always go to grimerica.ca slash webmail and check your mail there. Yeah. And you can also leave, uh, you know, feedback on the website too. Uh, in the, in the show, show section specifically, you can also review us on iTunes, which really helps. Yep. Review the show. Uh, like us on Facebook. Yeah. I think that's about it for housekeeping. Yeah. Troll us on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Join the battle on YouTube. Oh, really? Light and dark, yeah. Is there, is there a battle going on? No, there always seems to be. It actually, it always seems to degrade into racism on YouTube. Really? Yeah. In our, in our YouTube? Uh, in general. But seems, ours too, though? Yeah. Fuck. The Randall Carlson one is degraded to. Really? That's sad. Well, it's Why? not like racism per not se. Like no one's racism. being racist to each other. Just using racism. That that one guy really hates Jews, and he really hates Freemasons even more. So. Oh wow! Our buddy, the Peasant King. All I wonder right. if he still listens secretly. Oh yeah, yeah. Hi, Peasant King. Miss you, buddy. <laughs> All right. So is that about it? What else do we have to talk about? We've got Micah Hanks coming up. He's uh, he's a he's been a great help in. Uh, in the launch of this podcast and he's got a few books out there the ufo singularity ghost rockets uh magic mysticism in the molecule a couple radio shows of his own the micah hank show on kgra radio network and the graylian report every tuesday at eight o'clock she's not just shut off your ringer when you're in the studio that big of a deal i'm saying sending 14 mind videos of you in your vr environment that's fine can't you do it quietly put a sign on the door anyways yeah so is there anything else you want to say before we uh i said i just said what i needed to say okay yeah guys uh we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna jump into our interview with uh mike hanks hang around mouth of the south the mouth of the south
All right, guys, in Grand America tonight, we're going to be chatting with uh, the one and only Micah Hanks, the, the mouth of the South of the Grayling Report, uh, the Micah Hanks Show, and uh, and more, and uh, also a, a prolific author. But first, the one and only Sam Dunlop. Hey, buddy. How's it going tonight? I don't know. I'm feeling a little weird. We got our Skype hacked, and we're, we're uh, starting late here. But uh, I want to say hi to everybody in the chat room, and uh, we've got Micah Hanks. With us here, it's not a stranger to uh, everybody in Grand America. They've probably heard him on here before or on the Grayland Report before or the Micah Hanks show, or I could probably keep listening, uh, listing off a bunch of podcasts. He was just on, uh, what, the Jimmy Church show tonight and 14, no, the uh, Expanded Perspective recently. Micah's uh, the mouth of the South, and he's an author of uh, a few books, The UFO Singularity, uh, magic mysticism in the molecule. That's when I first heard him like five years ago <clears throat> on a radio show and uh, latest book that we want to talk to him about the ghost rockets. So uh, welcome to the show, Micah, and thanks for your help and getting us all set up here in Grand America. Hey guys, this is Bruce and I'm glad to be here because <laughs> Micah would be here tonight and uh, really want to talk to the guy. Yeah. So no, I'm really Bruce good. Swain. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, indeed. No, glad to be on with you boys and uh, always a pleasure to catch up with you guys, see what you're doing and talk with you. Yeah, man, we were we wanted to thank you for helping us. So you were like integral to uh, to us getting up and going. And it's nice to have uh, people in your corner setting all this stuff up. And it's not like a competitive thing; it's a cooperative thing. And uh, we really appreciate that. Listen, let me just tell you. You know, uh, I, I was talking with you know we I've relaunched the Middle Theory podcast with Christopher McCollum, and uh, you know th there's a slight chance that he might even come to Paradigm this year. And you guys, I'd love it if you could meet him. He's a really interesting dude. Yeah. Really, one of my my dearest, my best friends. But we were talking about this the other day. There are people in our community, you know, uh, that that naturally look at, uh, you know, for instance, okay, I do a podcast. These guys do a podcast. Therefore, they are my competition. I just don't look at it like that. And again, the, I, I cite World War II as the evidence of this. Okay, now follow okay. my logic here. Okay, I'll you know, again, World War II happens, and it's the last great conflict that we have in modern time old-style warfare waged with the, the latest technology and new innovations at that. But we also learned from that experience that we, through cooperation with, you know, again, the founding of the United Nations, and again, I'm sure that somebody out there, you know, of a conspiracy mind will say, oh, listen, he's just preaching the prophecies of globalism, you know. No, that's not it, but I am saying that, you know, through cooperation, I think that we see the epitome of civilization. And those, for instance, we, we have these problems in the Middle East right now with radicalized individuals who think that, you know, cutting people's heads off and threatening is the way to, to you know, instill progress or whatever their sick, you know, fantasy of progress is. Cooperation and building associations with cooperative associations with others, that is the epitome of modern civilized progression. And if we are to progress as a species, it will be through cooperation and not through the outmoded ancient right of competition where we have to try and fight each other for the mate or we have to fight each other for food or we have to fight each other for land which ensure us you know really only finite resources at best and very limited satisfaction i think that through the cooperation and what i've also called cosmic love in the past you know it it, it brings us all closer together it ties you know the, uh, the you know it, it keeps the ties that i think that you know hold us together and, and, and cooperation, I think, is really, again, the epitome of civilized modern thought. Uh, those who do not want to cooperate, it's a shame because cooperation is the way to do it. And that's why, just as we saw after World War II, that through cooperation, we can prevent further conflict mm -hmm. and, you know, improve our relations with people around the world and therefore our own lifestyle. Um, I, don't, I don't see 
there is, you know, even with the podcasting sphere here, is is there being a real necessity for having to be uber competitive with people? You know, no, always, not at all. Yeah. You guys, when you guys came to podcasting, you know, you'd listen to the Graylian for years, and I was really, you know, happy to hear that. And then you guys say, I'm going to do a podcast, and, and I become fans of your show, you know, or Cam and Colin on Expanded Perspectives. You know, every person, every dynamic duo like you guys or them or anybody, you know, Ben and Aaron, Mysterious Universe, that comes to the microphone and starts bringing something to it. We each lend something different, and the cooperation is key. And it's just been an awesome ride, and I'm happy to see you guys doing well with it. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that it's more important that we try as a community to get more people listening to podcasts as opposed to competing over what little market share we already have of uh, of the you know the electronic uh, new media found frontier kind of thing. Yeah. So, and then I also agree with what you're saying. I, I hear Joe Rogan talking about competition a lot and he, he's kind of got a different view about it. And he thinks that, you know, that we, we reach our <clears throat> pinnacle through competition and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's more about through cooperation. I think if you look at people cooperating together, that's when you see us thrive. I'm sorry. Was there an echo there for a moment? I don't know. I think there was. Yeah. I didn't notice that. That's your, that that? I don't know. What is that? Yeah. Then maybe that's on our side there. So anyways, I, I agree. I think we thrive with, uh, with cooperation as opposed to competitiveness. You know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Micah, what, what we wanted to have you on for a while. Oh, Darren's disagreeing here. Come on. Oh, there you go. Grimes <laughs> right on wrong with some healthy competition. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do agree with he- some healthy competition, but I still like to cooperate better. So, uh, Micah, we've, we wanted to have you on about, uh, a bunch of things, but we've got a couple things to talk to you about. The Paradigm Symposium coming up for one, but we've also haven't really talked to you about your uh, your book, The Ghost Rockets. Or no, what was it? Is that Ghost Rocket? Oh. Ghost Rocket. Yeah, I thought I had it wrong there for a sec. No, no. So, uh, w- do you want to give us a quick little synopsis of that, or would you like yeah. to jump into something else first? How do you want to do this? Well, there's thing? Any, any number of things, you know. I mean, like you know, what I've been working on a lot lately is. Um, Obviously, the uh, the Lost Secrets of the Gods anthology, or rather, I've been promoting that with New Page Books, and of course, this giant skeleton debate. We can talk about that a little bit too. But yeah, really, yeah, what for I, sure, what I'm best recognized for doing right now is pissing everybody off in the UFO community. Ooh. And so, we should really, really talk about that a little later. But first, Ghost Rockets. You know, there, there are so many weird ass stories. As a matter of fact, when I was on Jimmy Church's radio show uh, earlier this evening, uh, the first thing he asked me about. Was this report of something that was seen out over the coast of California just apparently this weekend? And um, basically, this is what it, this this was something that was described um, to a local news affiliate station in the uh, the uh, Bay Area. And uh, this is what the email read: "It said anyone else catch the apparent and very visible missile launch around six a.m. this morning? I'll make it a guess that it was a Vandenberg launch." Very bright burn in front of a large exhaust or smoke cloud appeared headed in our direction, but probably not dashed outside for a better view, but it must have done a stage separation and a much less visible object headed west. Now, whatever the heck was being seen, it has not apparently been confirmed via Vandenberg that, uh, that there was a launch that occurred. And so nobody seems to know what this thing is, but there are security cameras and other images that uh, managed uh, to uh, appear online that show this weird-looking object flying through the air. It does not appear to be consistent with a meteor uh, or a meteorite as it flew by. It does, seem, it does seem to resemble a little bit more a rocket launch. And it's funny because I don't know what is up with California, but there's always weird stuff going on out there off the West Coast. Hmm. Um, 
the ghost rockets was partially inspired by some of those cases. There was a report a few years ago where a film crew believed that they'd captured a missile being launched out of the Pacific Ocean, and it turned out just to be a jet contrail, but viewed from an angle and illuminated by the setting sun in such a way that it kind of gave the appearance of something else. Yeah, I remember that one, yeah. There was the famous Norwegian spiral case. You guys probably remember, I yeah. think, yeah. 2009 or 10, maybe. And so I, I, th- I started looking into some of these quote-unquote UFO reports, unidentified flying objects that are missile-like or rocket-like. And um, what's really weird, guys, is that there are a number of these kind of reports in relation to um, passenger planes and jet aircraft. And, and, and by looking in a NASA-maintained database called the Aviation Safety Reporting System that's freely available online where people can report anonymously about aviation, perceived aviation risks and hazards and threats and things like this, usually electrical or meteorological in, in, in nature. But there were a handful of reports of objects that were not classified as drones or that were believed to have been operated in drone quarter, uh, corridors. Um, these things occur at all different kinds of altitude. They're often, most often described as being bullet or missile-shaped, dark in color. Some of the more Incredible reports actually describe these in these really long rocket shaped kind of things that are about twice the size of a B-17 bomber fuselage with no wings, hmm. which might be the classical cigar shaped object, you know, of UFO lore. But I mean, there's some really strange things that are reported. And again, a person who files a report with the aviation safety reporting system is doing so because they perceive something that they find to be a, a threat to the safety of pilots. And it's reported anonymously. It's not being. It's not a report that's being made for practical jokes. In fact, it may be a federal offense to 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 scam that 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 system. Although I don't know how they'd ever find out who you were because it's anonymous reporting with the with the uh, ASRS. But you know, I find these to be highly credible reports that are independently reviewed by two agents, as I understand, following a report that's filed, uh, and then NASA maintains uh, for purposes of being able to maintain a bit of. Um, of um, objectivity rather than having the FAA actually, you know, maintain these databases. NASA does. Um, I find the reports incredibly credible and they seem to describe weird objects that are seen at high altitude, um, you know, flying dangerously close from time to time to aircraft. Um, And there's no clear explanation for what kinds of operations, military or otherwise, that might account for these things. And so that's in, in a nutshell, really what we look at with the book, the ghost rockets, which borrows from the classical ufological uh, terminology of the 1940s and the ghost rockets, the object seen over Sweden, it borrows that term and opens the book actually with a brief synopsis of what was happening there during that period in history, and then takes us all the way up to the present day with continued reports of rocket, missile, and torpedo-like UFOs. Awesome. I figure it's uh, like some back in the day when we were civilized before, you know, like maybe 50,000 years ago before we got wiped out. One we developed some sort of anti-meteor fucking thing. That's what those things were in Russia. That's where That's they right. come from. Those things in Russia. Remember they found those the, tanks the or whatever? Ground. If you go in them, you get fucking radiated. Irradiated? Radiated? Irradiated? In the ground, you mean? Yeah. Those ones on the ground? So you think this is like like leftover ancient technology or something like that? Yeah. Shooting down meteors. Wow. Interesting. Have you yeah. ever heard of that one, Mike? <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, when it comes to ancient technology, you know, I mean, I'm not generally an adherent to the to the whole ancient alien thing. Um, the, the reason being because I think that ancient people were probably, uh, let's just put it in plain, simple English here. Ancient people were probably using hallucinogens and they were probably seeing all kinds of shit. And 
And I think that the representations of art on cave walls are probably more indicative of the visionary experiences, whether hallucinatory or not. Um, which is funny. I thought that was such a wild and, and awesome theory when I, when that came to my mind a few years ago. And then I found out that the likes of Graham Hancock will be one of our key speakers at Paradigm this year. The, these guys have, have had very similar ideas. And I find that a lot of the, the, the more credible researchers in the alternative community tend to gravitate toward that interpretation of the mystery of ancient human origin and representations artistically um, from that period, rather than the idea that phys- physical flesh and blood aliens came to Earth. Now, we couldn't rule out either possibility, you know, but I, in my mind, one is more probable. And, uh, and that, to me, is the idea that the visionary experience has more to do with this, this ancient mystery. But does that mean that there weren't ancient technologies that really, really, really would blow our minds today? Look at the Antikythera mechanism, which was mm-hmm. obviously, essentially, a, a, a rudimentary Actually, it wasn't very rudimentary. It was actually extremely complex, but it seemed to be a, a computer-type mechanized device that was designed for purpose of alignment of, you know, with astronomical bodies and for observing and finding certain stars at various times of the year. Now, these days, I can take my, my, uh, my uh, uh, Celestron refractor telescope outside, and I can adjust the declination and the, and the ultimation, and I can... You know, if I if I know where polar north is, I can you know I can find objects in the sky with this. But in in ancient Greece, it's fascinating to know that essentially there were computers that were designed, you know, that were that were designed for use in determining very similar things. That with modern science, we think that this is something that you know is is fairly new to us. Where whereas thousands of years ago, there were people who were trying to do the exact same thing and utilizing mechanization of technology in order to do it. So. We should never underestimate the kinds of technologies the ancients were utilizing. There was certainly a lot of stuff that would blow our minds. Right, right. And But for the modern ghost rockets, though, I guess one of the big mysteries is they go back before we started making rockets, right? Or Well, what's interesting is that immediately after the Second World War, when the Nazis, of course, had been utilizing the, v, the V2, you know, yeah. Werner von Braun and, of course, uh, um, um, oh gosh, Hermann Oberth, who had really been kind of his mentor, yeah, who later, very interestingly wrote uh, pretty extensively about UFOs. There was an article that appeared in the 1963 May issue, I believe, of Fate magazine that, um, that was written by Hermann Oberth on UFOs. And it's one of the most brilliant articles on UFOs, really, I think, that's been written in modern times. And even by today's standards, I find it very good. Hmm. Here's the, the father of modern rocket science talking about you know, his, his speculations about what UFOs are, what they may represent. You know, he said that he liked going to the UFO conferences and hearing people's interpretations about these things. It's really interesting. But, but with regard to the, the, the rockets, um, yeah, the, the V-2 had already been innovated during the Second World War. In coincidence with the development of rocket technologies were reports of what are called Foo Fighters, which are just very anomalous, different varieties of things that were observed. Uh, um, you know, over the skies, you know, whether it be the, uh, you know, over Europe, mostly Europe, I think. Um, but but I do actually in the book I, I it, this is an interesting thing about the book the Ghost Rockets is that I have an appendix in the back which is a chronological listing of every decent report I could find of these reported rocket like technologies that were observed uh-huh. compiled through copious examination of newspaper reports uh, fourteen literature um, documentation from the old NICAP files and also the National UFO Reporting Center and other. Um, data and uh, God bless Peter uh, Davenport at the National UFO Reporting Center who provides such a great service in helping us try and yeah. uh, you know, collect this kind of stuff. So that was instrumental. But some of the reports in that appendix, guys, 
does go back to actual uh, the actual war years. There was a pretty interesting report of a, of a plane that was actually chased by what appeared to be a rocket that seemed to change its flight path and follow this plane, almost like uh, you know a homing missile might do uh, in modern day or a cruise missile, like radio- a heat-seeking missile or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is yeah, that technology did not exist at that time. So who the hell might have been utilizing that over Europe during the conflict? That is, if that's a true representation of what was seen, that's a weird, weird, weird thing. And it really makes us question what what might have been in development even during the war years that we didn't know about. I was at uh, this barbecue the other night, I, and I want to talk to this guy more. But he wrote a, he wrote this uh, article or a paper, but I don't think it was published anywhere. <clears throat> but just as a hobby, but he was looking at the the Nazis' technology, uh, and I've, I'd never heard about this before. Maybe you guys had, but they built these pillars, these concrete and rebar pillars or something to. Uh, to pull up uh, electromagnetic energy from the earth or something like this. And they were shooting plasma balls at uh, airplanes. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- that's, that's one interpretation of the deglocke. Yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Right. The bell, the, the, rather than being some sort of an anti-gravity, you Is know, that fl- when they were running out of gas, like a motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> Coming up with anything. Like when you got no gas and you're trying to fight a war, you start grasping at straws. Well, you know, that's the thing is that there's also kind of interestingly a racial component to this, you know, and of course a lot of the skeptical debunkers who, who come after me love to you know, <laughs> uh, launch uh, uh, racial uh, criticisms, you know, uh, at me. And I, and what I mean by that is they, they criticize members of the alternative research community as being racist. You know, if I talk about giants, I'm being a racist because I'm supposing that there was a race of beings that existed alongside humans. Um, that's not the case at all. I think that the giant bodies, by the way, if we can really call them giants, if anything, are human. And that's it. But I digress. Now, that said, um, I think that there's a racial component in that, for instance, Einstein's revolutionary physics, um, and this is actually known, some of the Nazis really refuted that because they did not want, you know, essentially a physics that was, that was you know, rooted in the ideas of, of you know, a brilliant man of, of Jewish heritage, you know. They wanted, their, they wanted their own, I guess, Aryan version of physics, you know. And uh, strange as that sounds, I think that that may have been in part the motiva- the motivation of trying to think around the principles espoused in relativity uh, as proposed by Einstein, brilliant man that he was. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, I think that, yeah, there, there certainly were, they were grasping at straws, Darren. They, they were trying different things. They were desperate. Um, but they also were limited with the resources that they had available to them. And one interpretation, if de Glocky, whatever that may or may not have been, if it even existed, Rather than being anti-gravity propulsion, that that might have been some sort of a anti-aircraft weapon that was mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. Huh. So, do you think that 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 could possibly explain the Foo Fighters if if those plasma balls that were supposed to be shot at some lead aircraft in a formation got, uh, I don't know, you know, sidetracked, or they were just sort of errant, maybe through testing or something like that. Yeah, who knows? I mean, there was obviously a lot of weird stuff going on during the Second World War, and damned if I can understand it all. I, I got to a point around the time I had written the UFO Singularity, which uh, was, I guess, I think I'd finished the manuscript. Yeah, I'd finished the manuscript the summer of the first paradigm, where we all met. In, 2012, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, but the book didn't come out until early 2013. Actually, no, no I went on Coast to Coast promoting that book right before Chris, or you know, right between Christmas and New Year. Um, in 2012. So I'd already actually booked a coast appearance and, and, and went on the show to talk about that book. So, but, but anyway, the, um, the UFO singularity, when that book came out, I think I'd pretty much convinced myself that there was some Nazi component to all this. And I, I don't 
buy that now because after writing the ghost rockets and, and, you know, rather than just speculating about, you know, conspiracy theories in relation to all this and actually looking at the history of rocketry and aviation, it seems far less likely to me that the, the material resources that would, that would be necessary for the creation of an extremely advanced technology that would be of such incredible power if it really existed. Um, something that would be a power that in, in likelihood at very least possibly could have turned the tides of the war itself. It seems almost impossible that that was actually really in development in Nazi Germany and the conspiracy writers that continue to try and say that that's what was going on maybe are not taking into consideration the, the, the historical, you know, <laughs> truism that basically the Nazis lost the war and part of it was because of how, you know, stretched. I mean, they, they were literally using wood in parts of what normally should have been metal framing in aircraft that were being built because of the limitations of resources that they had. You know, we have to look at the, the all the complete historical picture here. It's easy to refute the idea that the Nazis were building a Wunderwaffen, you know, some sort of incredible wonder weapons, but, but you know, it's very hard to substantiate those rumors as being anything more than just that, maybe rumors. But now what I would speculate, however, is that if there's any kind of a Nazi component to any of this, I've always been intrigued by those stories of, especially after the capture of France during the Second World War. We had, uh, we had a lot of plunder, fine art, and also there was a lot of gold. And, and then there were the stories of, you know, Nazi gold and silver and things like this that were actually carried and placed at the bottom of Alpine Lakes. Um, it seems very plausible that there was a lot of wealth that went missing after the Second World War, acquired by the Nazis, and that went someplace. And there was even this... Uh, this uh, U.S. Treasury agent who had uh, investigated the idea that there was silver that had been actually transferred that may have been Nazi-acquired um, silver that the Vatican Bank had assisted in the transfer of. What does that mean? It seems that there were maybe funds that were not in possession of Nazi Germany at the end of the war, but that Nazis nonetheless maintained certain control over, and it was very quietly and carefully removed to different locations after the war. And, and yeah, yeah, and then we get into that that whole thing. And I'm telling you, the, the case to be made for Hitler's escape to Argentina is surprisingly good, right down to the FBI documents that even discuss that possibility and the fact that it was not investigated at the time because of the the more apparent threat of the of the Cold War. It was not necessarily investigated as thoroughly as thoroughly as it could have been, but it was well known to intelligence officials as documentation shows that there were sources claiming that Hitler had gotten down to Argentina and that he may have lived out the rest of his life there and died there. And up until even, I think, the 70s and 80s, you know, it was still a question in intelligence agencies and among, you know, you know official policymakers here at stateside and elsewhere in the world that it was inconclusive what had happened to Hitler. We didn't know where Hitler had gone. We didn't know if the Russians had really actually found his body. You know, the question over Hitler's remains and what had actually been his ultimate fate has remained a question. And no matter how well we think we know the history, there's still good evidence that supports the idea that he may have actually gotten away. And yeah, yeah, no, and that that kind of supports some of the fact that maybe even though they didn't have resources available, you know, uh, in the open, People can't maybe, see your there air was, maybe there was something <laughs> going on in secret, right? Like, like the for example, the U.S. might have... Uh, technology that's uh, being flown around out there, but they're not using it in the war either. Like, even if we're in a world war, would would our secret aircraft technology be used in that war? Maybe not, right? So maybe the Nazis had different comp uh, compartments of technology and resources, and once yeah, they found once, a yeah, technology and developed get, it, 
they wouldn't want to waste it in the war. They decided, fuck, let's cut We're and run. We're going to lose the war anyway. Let's, let's get the yeah, fuck let's, out of here. Let's take this shit somewhere else. Yeah, exactly what you guys are saying. The idea could be espoused that if there was a technology existing at the time that they cut and run, or more likely to me, funds uh, were carried over following the war that may have been used to, uh, to, you know, to, to, to finance maybe what we could even call extra governmental covert uh, physics research. And this is interesting because, you know, I, there's a lot that Joseph Farrell says that I find truly compelling. And there's also a lot that I really disagree with. Yeah. And uh, I have periodic uh, exchanges with Joseph uh, P. Farrell. And, I, you know, again, I find him an extremely interesting, a very intellectual man. And I really love hearing him talk, you know. I don't think any researcher 100% agrees with one another, you know, on this or that. Richard Dolan and I, you know, are good friends, really good friends, but we don't agree on everything, you know, and that's cool. So mm-hmm. I think, that, Graham, I think it's, that's okay. Graham agrees with everybody. I fuck off. I disagree. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that, uh, you know, Joseph Farrell, um, you know, I think he, he would maybe be more apt to look at the possibility that there were actually technologies that were being built up during the war. Um, while I might not agree with that, I certainly agree that there probably was, you know, very careful financing that occurred after the fact. And then Farrell has also written about this Ronald Richter character who ends up down there in South America, you know, supposedly developing all this advanced physics that was going to be utilized in the news kind of, you know, an all new kind of aviation. And then later it's found that this guy was probably a, a wacko and that he was just, you know, you know, I, I just a, a, a doofus who was taking government funding that Juan Perón had given to him and was really, and you know, was, was really not building anything worthwhile. Maybe he was trying to, but didn't manage to succeed. I don't know. Something about that whole narrative seems really strange. And there's, I have had a hard time digging up other independent information about Ronald Richter. You know, it's, it's not even conclusive whether he was born in Austria or not, but it seems to be an Austrian born scientist who went to, I, I believe it was Argentina after the second world war. And, uh, and was given funding by Juan Perón and his government to try and develop advanced technologies, including physics that could be applied directly to aircraft. And he was investigated, I believe, by the U.S. Air Force, probably in conjunction with a lot of the stuff that was going on in the early UFO investigations, Grudge, Project Sign, these kinds of things, that led to this estimate of the situation in which it was determined that extraterrestrial aircraft might actually underlie some of this. But I just don't buy that because there's just no direct evidence of the ET thing. And there's a lot of threads that suggest that there's something going on behind the scenes here on terra firma. Huh. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty reptilians. <laughs> Hell yeah, reptilians. <laughs> so if you were if you were to uh, was there anything that you left out of the book that you wish you would have put in in the Ghost Rocket book? That's an interesting question. That is a really interesting question. Yeah, um, I, th- I wish I'd I wish I had presented the the information in relation to the old ghost rockets in a way that seemed more conducive to speculating that these were, that these were certainly um, earth technologies. I think, I think I was pretty clear with that throughout the book that I think that a lot of this is some sort of earth technology, but we, we don't have an official acknowledgement of where this comes from. But James Carrion, former MUFON national director uh, has written a book called the Rosetta deception. Oh Yeah. That book, um, a lot of the people in the UFO community really don't like him and his approach. I do like him and his approach. Uh, and I've said that, uh, you know, the, the book that he wrote, I actually own the Rosetta Deception. And it's kind of weird. He calls Joseph Stalin Uncle Joe the whole time. And it's just a really kind of weird, informally written book on a subject that I think, you know, deserves a really serious, staunch historical treatment. But then again, you know, James Carrion is not a historian. He's a, he's a researcher. 
And he did a good job with with what he presents in the book, and uh, and it's essentially he thinks basically evidence of a of a psyop ongoing in direct relation to the purported ghost rockets of the Second World War. And so, um, you know, I think some people have looked at his book and been like, "Well, that basically debunks Micah's book on ghost rockets." No, it doesn't actually. I find that they complement each other quite well, um, and that his work adds a new dimension to a lot of what I was writing, even in relation to some of the more modern uh, stuff. In that we have a real UFO phenomenon, but that many of us in the research community completely take for granted the fact that there's also a psychological warfare component where we uh, find that information is presented to the research community or disseminated to people in it with the hope that they will be very, rather credulous and that they will not be careful enough with the facts and that they will be misled into thinking one thing or another. Hmm. Uh, which ob- further obfuscates the reality of whatever is going on here. And I don't think it's the, the government is hiding UFO data or information about it. I think that fundamentally the apparent presence of a phenomenon called UFOs is is used by intelligence agencies to to steer public opinion at times. Like a good example would have been after the Second World War. 1947, Kenneth Arnold sees, you know, whatever over Mount Rainier. Uh, there's a report of, of a saucer crash, you know, at Roswell, New Mexico. And only then, only after all this comes out and is, and is in the news, is there this report of a flying saucer seen hovering over the Thames River with an iron cross on it that's reported in the New York Times. Again, Joseph Farrell wrote about this, I think, in Saucer Swastikas and Psyops, his book. And he even pointed this out. You know, he, he was actually the first person that I saw that said, look, pretty obvious that somebody, you know, had, had, you know, coerced the New York Times into probably writing an article that would make it sound like the Nazis had been doing this. And that if the Nazis had been doing this, that this was a technology that was later captured by the Allies. And now that these saucers are appearing, we want the Russians to read the American newspapers and hear all about these saucers. And we want to lead them to think that somebody had captured these from somebody else's technology and that now we've got a new wonder weapon of our own. So we've got a big stick. Don't mess with us. You could see how that could be used during the Cold War very easily to dissuade our enemies from attacking us. And that in likelihood, some of the quote-unquote UFO reports are probably not valid at all, but were careful placement of information with hope that it would be read and interpreted in such a way by enemies. Yeah, that's a tough one. Is that is that what's pissing the uh, UFO community off about you right now? <laughs> no, uh, it's that I've, decent, I've decided to write a series of articles, you know, uh, that uh, one appeared at MikeHanks.com called The End of Ufology, Why Serious Research Goes Underground. Oh. And when you come around saying the end of ufology and statements like that, it tends to get people a little, a little upset. But the funny thing is, is I'm not really advocating the end of ufology. I'm actually, in an ironic way, reflecting the sentiments that skeptical writers have written about. And actually, a, a skeptical blogger who I really respect is uh, Robert Schaefer. He took issue with the, the fact that I would say skeptical bloggers. He says there really are none. He says I'm the only consistent skeptical blogger who's written about UFOs. But I have to say that Sharon Hill, Sharon Hill has written a good bit about it as well. Um, and also uh, this Mark Jacobson fellow who writing, he's not a regular skeptical blogger, but he is a writer who, writing for New York Magazine, wrote an article called The End of UFOs, which obviously took a rather skeptical attitude toward it. And he wrote this article about his experience uh, attending, as a journalist, the MUFON Symposium up there in Pennsylvania. And in essence, my feeling is is that, you know, there are going to be people who, because they're in the mainstream and they are predisposed to writing about UFOs in a, in a, in a matter that is 
you know, downplaying any potential reality here. Of course, you know, I think it's effectively, you know, and correctly, uh, you know, uh, a statement, you know, when, when, when I say this is a skeptical writer or a person who's taking a skeptical perspective. And so I know Robert had said, what skeptical bloggers? Well, specifically Mark Jacobson, who was just a journalist who took a skeptical attitude, but that's who I was talking about. Right. And uh, he writes this article called The End of UFOs and basically talks about how, you know, everything at these conferences these days, it's all the same old speakers regurgitating the same old stories. That's not always true. But there is a lot of that, and there are a lot of old ideas that, you know, really maybe aren't worth anything these days, but that have been held on to by researchers who have, you know, staked their reputation and their, mm-hmm. uh, their longevity on those ideas. And, you know, I think that when we watch TV shows on primetime, and when we go to events and we perceive that as being UFO research, when in fact these are often celebrities who represent UFOs, but which are not an accurate representation of the serious scientific and methodical and philosophical and historical research that goes into it, that's a problem that this is what people call the end of UFOs because they aren't looking at UFOs in the true sense to begin with. Real UFO research to me goes underground and it involves scientific research into everything from earthquake lights to, you know, extremely, extremely far out you know, physics and, and, and science that could be applied to propulsion systems and God knows what else. But there's a real ufology. Those who probably are carrying out the most important research and the most relevant research, they wouldn't even call it ufology. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want anything that they call, they, w- they wouldn't want anything that they do associated with UFOs. But we will eventually probably understand more about the UFO phen- phenomenon through the study of unrelated areas that complement what we are beginning to discern about UFOs, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, kind of. What do you mean by underground, though? Just, well, just moving towards more of like the mainstream? Well, I, when, I say, when I say underground, what I actually mean is that the UFO movement, the mainstream UFO movement, which is really the antithesis of mainstream, but you know, nonetheless, unto itself in relative terms, you know, what we call the UFO movement, there's this this attitude, and, and and it's not always the case, but a lot of you know the time it's this, and maybe part of this is the perception that the mainstream media kind of, kind of you know floats as being representative of the UFO movement. But either way you want to look at it, um, and I think that it is actually a legitimate idea um, from attending various conferences and seeing this what I might call the love and light crowd. I don't mind that. I'm I'm a spiritual person myself, but. I see that there's this kind of a new age component that is represented at UFO conferences uh, and very little critical thinking applied to whether or not there is indeed some sort of an extraterrestrial presence. Now, that may still be the case. Who knows? Yeah. You know, my intention isn't to attack anybody's beliefs, but unfortunately, I think that the thing is, is that there's more belief than there is discernment. And we can't jump to the conclusion that there is a benevolent race of extraterrestrials who are communicating with us and that that's why we study UFOs. UFO, last time I checked, still meant unidentified flying object, not extraterrestrial flying object. Yeah. If we had come to any kind of a semblance of a determination conclusively about what these things are, if we had any idea, we wouldn't still be researching UFOs. Obviously, there are more questions than answers, as there were at the outset. And we we have whittled away very little in terms of helping us, you know, find our way to the core um, and we are still asking questions more than 50 years after the fact. And so when it, when it comes to what goes underground, I say that relative to the mainstream UFO idea, you know, we wouldn't consider academic institutions and science organizations and people who are studying earthquake lights and things like Brown Mountain to be mainstream ufology. Uh, 
They wouldn't even call themselves ufology at all. They'd call themselves, you know, atmospheric researchers or something like that, whatever. Right, right, right. We'll find a, I think we'll find a lot of answers in those areas, and, and that is underground relative to the UFO movement. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. So sticking on that sort of ETH uh, thing versus terrestrial uh, phenomena or whatever you want to call it, what about uh, some of these reports like the Kamada report or what they talked about at the Robertson panel or some of the government documents that might uh, hint that there is uh, an ET component to this? So how do you how do you separate all that stuff with you know or the large big box sightings or the Phoenix Lights or Stevensville like you know these these sort of Sightings that make you think, even if that was some sort of secret man-made uh, secret space program thing, how would we even make something that large that flies silently through the sky? Yeah, I mean, some of this stuff does seem to involve technology that is far beyond what we know to exist. You know, or if it's not, it, it does a good job of representing itself as being that. You know, right, right. Especially like when we get into the realm of a very interesting subject to me, uh, the stealth blimps or the idea of stealth blimps. Um, and, and, and within, you know, what we would call a stealth blimp, I think that, uh, you know, the, the giant, the giant triangle phenomena, whatever these things are, these, these large triangles, the silent triangles seem to be some sort of a kind of blimp like, you know, flying platform kind of a thing. And they seem to be capable at times of really strange behavior. I mean, that case up there in Illinois, back in the uh, winter of 2000, where the, uh, the the different members of law enforcement from different agencies um, all around Southern Illinois, they were seeing these uh, over the course of you know the wee hours of uh, you know, late late night, early morning. Uh, they were chasing one of these things as it flew around Southern Illinois, and they said that this object would be moving along very slowly, very slowly and silently, and that all of a sudden it would just cover a tremendous amount of space in a short amount of time. It could just like zoom, kind of like a kind of like a water skipper skipping across the surface of water, just whoosh, and it just slows down again. And I'm thinking, God almighty, what kind of a technology could do that? You know, if it is being reported accurately, according yeah, to what the officers yeah. saw, and one of them even photographed it. You can't see it very clearly, but he got a Polaroid photograph of this, this airship, whatever the hell the damn thing was as it flew off. I'm just thinking, you know, sometimes it's a little difficult to try and imagine what kind of earthly technology could do that. What? Yeah. You know, I, I you know again, you know, I don't I don't claim to have the answers, you know, and I certainly won't say conclusively that there's not an extraterrestrial component. I just know that we don't know what it is, and there I, I can't prove that there's alien life out there, but I can prove that there's life on Earth, <laughs> you know, and maybe that has something to do with it. But some of this stuff, yeah, it it gets pretty weird. 
and and the size too. You talked about extremely large craft. The size of some of these things is just mind blowing too. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's 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 something that is so far beyond what we know technologically to exist. It just almost is impossible to fathom how or who could do something like this and create these things. It's just really it's really truly perplexing. Yeah, but if you looked at some of the stuff we've created a few hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, they'd have been pretty blown away as well. Yeah, yeah, in in relative terms, yeah, that that is certainly a consideration. So in like a couple hundred years we'll be like, how did we not figure that out? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think maybe that that's how it'll be too, Darren. You know, I think that you know, in a couple of hundred years, people will look back and be like, "Come on, guys, really?" It was such a mystery at the time, but now you know, it seems simple. Speaking of figuring stuff out, like out of all the sort of Fortean mysteries and all that that you talk about or that you cover or that your guests cover, do you, do you think there's one that might be uh, proven a little bit more or sort of you know become part of the mainstream reality than than another one? Have you ever thought about that? <clears throat> yeah, um, I would say that maybe the, I, I think that based on our interpretation and our expectations for what probably are causing what uh, within, again, if you wanted to call this, you know, within the jurisdictions of UFO research, right? Um, what are referred to in the scientific community as earthquake lights, which seem to be the more natural aerial illuminations. I, w- I would hazard to guess that uh, based on our, our knowledge, it's, it, we're far from getting to a complete picture, but based on what we're studying in terms of seismology and geology, I, w- I would guess that maybe we're coming a little closer to a determination about that particular kind of phenomenon. And that maybe, you know, as time goes on, we'll be able to rule out a few of the things that we have previously called UFOs. And as we learn more about them, we'll be able to say, well, you know, these things for a long time were unidentified. Now we have a good understanding of what's actually causing this, and we can predict where it's going to happen, and we can identify it when it does. And therefore, you know, when something truly exotic shows up, we're better able to determine what is, quote-unquote, really ufological and what is, you know, something else. So by this point, have you almost completely abandoned the... um, ETH? ETH. Is that what you're thinking there? Yeah. Not entirely, you know. I I will never rule out that possibility. I won't rule out that possibility. Um, I think that they're more likely conclusions, but um, but you know, we don't know. We don't know, and it could very well be that everything that we think we can apply logically to understanding whether or not these craft are extraterrestrial, um, could be refuted because of the anthropomorphism that we apply to it. In other words, we we. We, we get tunnel vision and we ex- all of our expectations of, of the UFO phenomenon are, are based on the expectations that whatever is controlling the phenomenon will be fundamentally like us. Yeah. You know, or they, they will behave essentially identically to us. Um, that, that may not be the case, you know, and, 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 and in likelihood would not be uh, considering the potential for variety throughout the universe. And so extraterrestrial phenomena, uh, rather than being something that we would presume would be just like us, um, is probably going to be something that's extremely exotic and unpredictable even in relation to human understanding and perception. And therefore, you know, there could be components to all this that would seem illogical to us that would be perfectly natural for something extraterrestrial in relation to how it gets here, what it does, and what its intentions are in coming here. Mm. And, and all the best arguments against the ETH could maybe be refuted based on the grounds that we have just overly anthropomorphized the thought we've applied to it. 
And so to me, we can never really fully rule out the idea that maybe what we're dealing with is some variety of, I think, what we could safely call a physical intelligence from elsewhere that is interacting with us. That could certainly still be a part of it. Hmm. Interesting. I want to ask a question uh, from Forti in mind before I forget. Sure. We we had uh, the Bigfoot show on a couple of weeks back, uh-huh. <laughs> and they kind of they I think they kind of knew how I was going to react to this uh, this part of the the phenomenon, whether to kill or not to kill Bigfoot if you find them. Kill Bigfoot. <laughs> and uh, I think Jess and Forti and mine and, and Darren his... knew that I was going to be you know on the like don't kill Bigfoot side. So he came in with shoot right. Who did? Justin. No, I don't think he did. Yeah, did he? I think in the last email he sent me. Oh. Let me let me check. Keep talking. So, so I guess the the premise is that they think that uh, these Bigfoot hunters think that the way to preserve Bigfoot is to first kill him to prove that he's there. And uh, I have a hard time with that one. So, what do you think? Kill or not to kill? That that has been a argument that's been made for a long time. The late Grover Krantz, the uh, famous anthropologist. Um, he had said that as grisly as it sounded, that really the only way that we'll ever be able to prove and thus protect a potentially endangered species is to take the life of one so that we will have um, the final proof. Now, the, the, the thing about that is, is that I know exactly why he was saying that, because physical science will never be convinced without physical evidence. Plain and simple. Yeah. Anecdotal evidence is not going to ever be good enough for physical scientists. Um, but by the same token, you know, I think that the humanitarian approach, yeah, I don't necessarily advocate going out and killing Bigfoot. I understand why a scientist would say that it's mandatory relative to the, the requirements uh, of science for proof. But my, my determination with regard to Bigfoot uh, has become more and more over the years that what we're dealing with is something that's more human rather than animal, very clearly. You know, they say if it walks like a duck, you know, yeah, well, and these these things. I mean, they walk like us. They 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 seem to be primitive or wild, even humans. Yeah, we had no trouble killing people, so. Oh yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so we should have no problem killing some sort of a some sort of a incredible creature that is just like us. Yeah, the humanitarian in me actually says that it would be tantamount to committing murder. Is is the the truth? That, yeah, right. That's where exactly. I stand. That is where I stand, though. Yeah, but it's yeah. a loophole. No, see, the chat room's kind of agreeing with me, too. Don't shoot. <laughs> yeah, well, Justin did switch his vote to shoot. No, really? Yeah, he said, take the shot. But I did. Put, I put a tweet out on it to see. I said, RT for shoot and favorite for no no shoot. And it was 11 to 3 in favor of not shooting. Ah, oh, sweet. But you fucks are killing Bigfoot. I'm trying to save him. Shoot the Bigfoot. Boom, exist. Be fucking Bigfoot parks and no. So what about okay? So feed the big feet. No, maybe you get a pet Bigfoot. What, what do you mean feed him? You just killed him. How are you going to feed him? You killed one. You think there's only one? So you're the one. Well, no. Single, so everybody else is going to go out and start hypothesis. hunting them all. You you you, you, you believe so? in the single Sasquatch hypothesis? If they can't find him now with the camera, you think Sasquatch can let you find him when you got a gun? So why don't they just tranquilize them? Especially that's my that, point. Like why if you don't have to kill them? Most fucking people don't have a couple of tranquilizers in their back pocket. Well then don't the hunt person, Bigfoot. The person who kills Bigfoot's gonna be some random hunter out on a deer hunt who stumbles upon him, boom, in the chest. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, Mike had a ramble that's on a, there, but yeah, no. it's an interesting uh it's an interesting subject. 
No, it certainly is. I mean, I actually find it fascinating. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of meaningful dialogue that still could be said uh, in relation to Bigfoot. Uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people just dismiss it out of hand and just consider it really just silliness. Again, I think that there's actually a lot to be considered. And again, this, this, there's enough anecdotal evidence for what that's worth to support that there's something going on. Exactly. And that people will just dismiss it out of hand and say, yeah, something might be going on, but you know, without that physical proof, it doesn't exist. The, the lack of evidence, what is that? You remember that statement? The, the absence of evidence should not be misconstrued as evidence of absence. Yeah, yeah I love that one. Uh, that because at the outset, guys, what we always start with, hello, we always start with unexplained phenomena. What science seeks to do is to understand unexplained phenomena. All phenomena at the outset begins as unexplained phenomena. And with science, we try to apply logic and, 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 a, and, a, and a process of inquiry that can help us to discern the potential existence of something or the potential formation of a scientific law that helps us better understand the universe around us. Um, and that's the thing is that, you know, at what point did we forget that all science begins with unexplained phenomena that science through process of inquiry seeks to solve and quantify and correlate and understand. Yeah. And part of that is, is paying attention to thousands of anecdotal uh, reports. You'd think, I mean, yeah, yeah not to, it doesn't mean that that's hard evidence, but you'd, you'd have to take that into account. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, it isn't all a time thing that ghosts, Bigfoot, time ufos it's all just like little glimpses of ripple in the time future past you know you've seen a ufo that was there a thousand years in the future wow. or a thousand years in the past bigfoot you're seeing you know maybe some sort of creature that was around a couple million years ago and that's oh, why sir. you can't catch them unless you have one of those proton things from ghostbusters <laughs> i need a proton pack i bet you caleb has one he's probably got one little <laughs> bastard yeah, so that so, Mikey, you're going to Paradigm. You're going to be speaking there, uh, Paradigm Symposium. So can you can you give us a little sneak preview of what your uh, talk will be about? Well, yeah, my plan is to actually to 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 to, to wing to it. Get... No, no, not at all. No, no. It's, it's actually got to be quite elaborate if I can if I can get it all together, do it the way I want to do it. The, the, you know, I, I never give the same um, speech twice. Nice. My, my speech, you know, the first Paradigm was was uh, Magic Mysticism and the Molecule, and then uh, the second. Uh, Paradigm was the ghost rockets, and then in between those two, I gave this lecture on the UFO singularity at the UFO Congress, and then uh, Ancient Alien Cruise. This past January, I spoke about uh, giant skeletons, and then I'm billed as the Fortean guy at the Fort Fest this this oh. this March at, in in Baltimore, Maryland, and so I had to get up there and I had to give this lecture that really kind of gave a modern perspective of Fortiana, and okay. I spoke and I spoke right after David Pilates, you know, missing four one one, really cool guy by the way. So, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, I, not that I wouldn't give the same lecture twice, but I just don't like being someone who gets up and gives the same talk over and over and over again. You know, I try to mix things up. And so this time, what I actually hope to try and do is kind of do something similar to what we did with the, uh, the Fort Fest speech, where we kind of canvas unexplained phenomena, but how we can apply science to it. And the idea is to try and kind of take this mysteries of time and space approach where we actually bring into the discussion science and physics just as well, which would be kind of, I think, in keeping with a lot of the academic presence 
at Paradigm this year, and also the thoughts of guys like Thomas Fusco, who really realized that, again, scientific inquiry presents all of this and begins with all things looking at it as though this is unexplained phenomena, because it is. But through proper, methodical, careful study, we can learn things and we can create predictions. You know, we can form hypotheses and we can make certain predictions that should be able to be verified later on down the road. And so, you know, that's what I hope to try and present at Paradigm Symposium is kind of, I'll be speaking Sunday morning and it will hope to tie, so you guys got to get up early enough. You, you've got to be down there. Graham, I know you will, but Darren, yeah. da- <laughs> I missed get up! Time. Get up! Wake up! Darren likes to sacrifice his his uh, his morning lectures for his late night socializing. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you miss my lecture again this time, I, I don't know if you missed the last one actually, so I might be being too harsh. But <laughs> yeah, you the missed. Last the time lecture. I was having a baby, so I definitely missed the last yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I might have missed the other one. Yeah, he yeah he he was asleep. He was asleep at home because his wife had been pregnant, and therefore he he couldn't. I wasn't like, asleep. Oh yeah, 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 yeah just, I wasn't asleep. Yeah, it was it was just the opposite. I'm sorry. Yeah, when you when you bring a little into the world, I I, I do know. Yeah, you you don't sleep for for two years. But now Graham, on the other hand, Graham, you know, you and I our paths have crossed numerous times, as well as our amigo Red Pill Junkie. Uh huh. Yeah. Who uh who has sadly said now that he won't be uh, at Paradigm this year. No. You better be. We're crashing with him the first night. <laughs> yeah, I'm just fucking with you. Yeah, yeah be- I do it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I haven't heard from him for a while, so he kind of had me there. Yeah, he, you know, he'll, he'll, as far as I know, he actually most certainly will be there. He is, you know, again, one of the brightest thinkers, I think, in the field and uh, somebody who, with whom, well, you know, I haven't heard with him, heard from him in, in a while either, but I know he's been working a lot, but he is somebody uh, whose insights I um, truly cherish. And uh, he is a, he's a wonderful, wonderful dude. That, that is for sure. So you're speaking Sunday morning. Yeah. That's good. So you'll have most of the crowd there. That'll be good. I'm hoping. Yeah. That, yeah, that's, yeah. That's everybody's hope who has to speak on a Sunday morning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when do you get to town? Uh, that's a question. I need to re- remind myself of what my itinerary is. I've got a couple of different flight itineraries that I've got to go look at and see where I'm going to be and where I'm going and when I'll be there. But uh, I, I believe I will be in town probably a day or two beforehand. And um, and as a matter of fact, I should get in touch with Miguel about that. And uh, And yeah. And then we will be um, we will be arriving uh, and and getting to work, and then I will be there probably throughout the the weekend, and probably flying home on Monday, something like that. You know, that's the beautiful thing about Paradigm Symposium is it's like an all weekend thing. You know, yeah, I yeah. think we're there uh, Wednesday night till Monday. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're going to rekindle, or you have rekindled, or restarted your Middle Theory podcast with. Uh, with your buddy there, McNonymous. That's right. Um, do Do you want to mention that a little bit? And you, I also wanted you to to be able to talk about your show with uh, with Jim Harold too. Oh sure, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Middle Theory is a unique program because for me, being someone who is so known as a guy who is a theorist in relation to unexplained phenomena, you know, I've always wanted to be able to do a news and events show, and um. And people will listen to the show and they'll say, this is great, but, you know, we'd really rather hear you talk about the paranormal. We don't want to hear about politics, you know. Uh So the only way I've found that I can, because I used to try to, you know, incorporate a bit of that into the Graylian report and it just didn't necessarily, you know, fit. So middle theory was a natural um, continuation of the discussion in relation to those things that don't fall into the realm of the paranormal. And that's the funny thing is that 
Um, I'm sure I'll always be known as a person who has a lot of interesting ideas about the unexplained, but you know, this is a niche market. It really is. Uh, you know, I, although I loathe having to even refer to it as a market of any kind, <laughs> it's 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 a it's a niche market with, with in which we're we are in in relation to there being a you know a small swath of the public that really 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 buys into this sort of stuff. But current events, news, politics, sports, you know, even um, science. All these kind of things are up for grabs on Middle Theory, and I've got a co-host, and that's the beauty of it is that a lot of my shows I end up flying solo, you know, and I might have a guest or something like that, but there's still a tremendous amount of work that goes into preparing for something. Um, whereas, you know, when you've got a co-host, you know, you've always got 50% helping you out. And, yeah. uh, and so Middle Theory Ish. is... A, yeah, yes, yeah. I don't even know how you did a an hour and a half before uh, tonight on your own. I couldn't even handle the chat room on my own for five minutes. Oh yeah, yeah. I did a two hour radio show where I hosted by myself. Then I did an hour and a half on Jimmy Church's show, and then I'm here on on your program. I must be more machine than man now. Uh, yeah, I think so. You've reached the singularity. I think. Oh, you've ascended. You've raised your vibrations. I've ascended. Yes, we're all going to ascend. Yes, exactly. No, I regenerated. I'm a time lord. Damn it, you know. <laughs> so, did you change anything this time around on the middle theory, or just going back the way it was last time? I'm still not a ginger, but we 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 uh, we. I'll tell you, that's the funny thing. Actually, uh, is that this time around, um, we did definitely change the introduction. Um, there's a this. I'll tell you what. People will want to go to middle3.com and download this latest podcast because there's a, a really crazy sci-fi introduction that we did, like a little bit of an audio drama that is incredibly entertaining, and it brings people up to speed on where Magnanimous has been and what's, what's been going on. And um, yeah, I, I don't want to say much more. I just want people to go listen to it because, I mean, it's really one of the most entertaining things I think I've ever actually produced. Um, I, I could sum it up in two words, must exterminate. and um, I think that people will get a real kick out of it. So anyway, then once we once we get that out of the way, we've got the new introduction that we've done, which is relevant to a lot of the political discussion of ISIS and things like that. And then we get right to business. And really, this new comeback episode, um, which really just is is catching up at following a hiatus that resulted from you know I think everybody's got busy busy schedules. And in fairness, a lot of people have said is the reason that the show's on hiatus because Mike is too busy and has a million other things going on. Actually. In truth and in fairness, uh, McNonymous has been just as busy. This guy is a historian. He'd been going to law school in New York and going through a process of having to travel a lot and then ultimately moving back down here to, at least temporarily, to uh, Asheville. And he may be heading off someplace else after that. But for the time being, he is here at least for the next four months. And so, uh, and in the future, the foreseeable future with his future schedule, we still see it being far more, uh, you know, tenable than than what it was with law school and life in New York. Oh, okay. So, so both of our schedules are far better and we plan never to fall uh, out of practice again with middle theory. We hope to, I mean, we may take some holidays off and things like that, but for, you know, this is going to be here to start, say, uh, to stay again. So, you know, middle theory, um, it's, it's a unique program for, for those reasons. You know, it's, it's an opportunity to hear me talking about things other than politics or, or rather than paranormal or the right. politics, of the paranormal, and and it's a unique program, and I think that in a in, a, in an odd way that subject matter reaches a lot more people. The short time that Middle Theory was really hitting it and going, we picked up so many listenership, uh, you know, so many listeners, and it's such a listenership. And and many of those people would say we found the Grayley Report through Middle Theory, and I'm thinking that's so backwards, that's so strange. So 
But another way that people are finding the Rayleigh Report these days is the paranormal report that I do with Jim Harold. And uh, that's a, a once a week show that we do where we actually do a video cast and we examine the best videos of the week. Um, we make an audio version available because strangely, there are a lot of people who actually like just downloading the audio cast and listening. Yeah, it's so handy. Yeah. But you can, you can log on on YouTube and you can actually watch the show. It's a live video uh, cast that we both do each week on, on YouTube. Just search for Paranormal Report, Micah Hanks or Jim Harold. And is I that a set day? Sorry. Uh, that is, uh, we, we do that uh, every Friday and it's usually posted on Fridays or Saturdays. Yeah. And what do you guys do? Just talk about the latest stories, uh, like sort of current events for the paranormal? Yeah, what we do is there are videos every week. You wouldn't believe the number of videos. We reported sightings of a ghost, you know, right, a right. new dinosaurs discovered, a new Bigfoot photograph comes out, you know, a UFO video. And we, we pick, each of us pick four of the best videos of the week, and we just do a news show where we analyze these videos. And it's a really fun thing. And it's kind of crazy because Clayton Morris, one of the co-hosts of Fox and Friends, had previously been the co-host with him. Uh, and and the story goes basically that Clayton, awesome guy, um, by virtue of the uh, the demands of his contract with Fox News, uh, was not allowed to basically continue doing other programs that were, um, uh, I guess, what would be crazy? The, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I was I was going to say, uh, um, oh, there's a term that that's just slipping my mind here. I'm totally having cognitive <laughs> flatulence occur here. But, uh, uh, but the basic idea, uh, um, oh, I want to think of this word here. Um, if, if you are going alternative, to, well, I was going to say, if you're going to school and you have extracurricular activities, that's the word. Yes. Right. He wasn't, he wasn't basically allowed to continue doing extracurricular things. And so he had to drop the paranormal report. That's and, pretty lame. Yeah. But what's interesting is, is it's like, you know, wow, we had a former host of Fox news and a really cool guy too. I mean, Clayton is, I think he's just an awesome guy. He's still, manages to to sneak UFO stories and things into the show when he's doing Fox and Friends. You know, they, they carried a story about the Peruvian UFO files and things the other day. Really respect him and what he's doing. Um, and it's a shame he couldn't continue, but, you know, I'm very humbled to be able to jump in there after Clayton uh, and uh, and to give it a shot. And, and I got a great announcement that I'll make here that I don't think we've maybe talked about publicly yet, but I'll give it exclusively to Crime Erica. Nice. Uh, Clayton, he can't do a regular show, but he can certainly do interviews. And so Clayton, I hope from time to time, maybe he can come back and sit in with us on the Paranormal Report. That's what we're looking forward to doing is getting him back on at some time in the future. So something to look forward to. Hmm. You're, uh, you're finding ways around little loopholes to get him back on. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so what about, uh, what about the Grayley and everything? Uh, do you want to mention your, your plus now? You have a... Uh, a subscriber section that uh, was been a few months now, I guess. That's that's true. Yeah, Grayley and X. You know, if you go to GraleyInterport.com forward slash X, it's a little different from the subscriber zones that you know you'll find at other websites. You know, we, I, I, I don't like the model of you know luring people in by giving them half of a show and then charging you know for the rest of it. And and there are a lot of podcasters who do that, and that's okay. I just I felt that you know I've been doing Grayley where it's a fully self-contained two-hour show, um, hour and a half to two hours every week. And, uh, I didn't think it would be right to renege on what I've given people for years and start charging them for it. And I've actually had some offers from different you know networks and agencies who had said, you know, if you'll come over to our network and allow us to, to do that with Grayley and report, you know, you're going to lose some of your listenership, but the ones who know it's worth something are going to pay. And I said, no, I won't, I won't do that. I won't sell out and disenfranchise my listenership. 
uh, just to make a buck. But what I will do is I will offer additional content for those who want it. And so we've been very lucky and very fortunate to get a lot of good feedback from people with Graylian X. And if you want to check it out, it's graylianreport.com forward slash X. You can sign up. It's just seven bucks a month or $77 a year. And you get additional weekly podcasts and also a monthly thing called Graylian Enigmas as well as other yeah, stuff. That's the best part is the Enigmas. Yeah. It, it's, it's an interesting show. Yeah. I, I like that a lot too. And uh, this, this upcoming edition is going to be a breakdown of the phenomena that was happening in West Virginia around the time of the Mothman sightings. Cause I don't think it was a Mothman per se. I think there were a number of different things going on that were misconstrued by the media essentially as being this quote unquote Mothman. The real story that was going on there, I think, is much deeper. And so that's going to be wings over West Virginia on the upcoming Enigmas. Willow Wisp is asking if that's like old school radio shows. Yeah, it is kind of. It's it's a lot more like a theatrical uh, presentation, a little bit of like In Search Of, a little bit, <laughs> yeah, a little bit like the uh, the old classical uh, you know, uh, radio murder mysteries and things, you know, I mean, like enigmas, it really presents a, um, it, it, what's got creepy ass music, first of all. And I mean, like really like John Carpenter's 1980s, the thing kind of creepy music, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and it presents a theatrical kind of retelling of stories. It's not me analyzing a story and sitting down and saying, you know, welcome again, folks. You know, I mean, we, 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 it's got a darker feeling. There's a darker tone and we tell the stories but we've done from you know some of the episodes in the past have been the William Rowe affidavit, which described an incredible encounter with a Bigfoot. Um, we've done the Pascagoula, Mississippi abduction of Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker. Uh, another episode, one of my favorites, was the episode we did on the Dyatlov Pass incident. And I think we we brought some very interesting stuff to the table with regard to that Dyatlov, you know, the the the, the what led to the deaths of those of those you know hikers from the Russian Polytechnic Institute uh, back in the fifties. You know, these are a lot of, we've looked at a sea serpent case, you know, and, and, uh, and then maybe one of my, I think my, maybe my favorite was this last most recent episode, um, which was the story of a Hungarian man named Bela Kish, who was essentially a, he was a, a early World War I era serial killer, but he drained some of the bodies of the women he killed of blood, which brought in this strange vampiric component to it like there's this vampire thing he was never caught he fled and was never caught and the story that we do in enigmas follows Bela Kish all around the world from from Hungary to New York even and the sighting of Bela Kish in the new world where he may have escaped and it's not known whether or not he continued to, to murder and to kill people and drain them of blood but it is a, it's a mixture of a, of a serial killer with vampire stuff with a missing person report and it's just it's one of the most strange stories, and, and I knew it would be great for Enigmas, and that's the kind of stuff that we're offering with our extra content rather than just additional podcasts. We're trying to do something a little different. Very cool. That sounds great. So I guess we can't just leave out KGRA, too, and the Mike Hanks radio show. Yeah, that's the Monday night show. And, uh, you know, KGRA, you know, my friends, Race Hobbs and uh, Lauren Cutts, that are the the heads of the network, they're good friends, really, really bright minds in the UFO, UFO community. And they'll be there at Paradigm Symposium, so you guys will get to meet those guys. Oh, great. Yeah, the network's a wonderful thing, and, uh, you know, the, the fine host, Richard Dolan, has a show on the network. I mean, they're bringing a lot. They really are bringing a lot to the table. And yeah, it's, that's, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, it's really great. Uh, are you planning on doing any live uh, broadcasts from Paradigm this year? Oh, of course. Yeah, they'll be really? playing. Jeez, wow. Yeah, so you know, you know me, man. I get bored real easy, so I got to do a lot of stuff all the time. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we should have our, we're going to have our Yeti there. Graham <laughs> will finally get to use his Yeti. No, I used it last time at Paradigm, buddy. Once uh, a year. All right, Michael. Well, we don't want to. We don't want to keep you too long because uh, it's uh, it's late there. We really appreciate you coming on. Oh man, my pleasure, guys. Truly, yeah. it really is. And we'll see you uh, in a couple weeks. Two weeks. So, uh, yeah, we're gonna release this episode this week. Um, usually, it takes us a couple weeks, so we're gonna bump you bump you to the top of the queue. Well, I appreciate it, guys. It's truly my pleasure, and so looking forward to catching up with you guys and hanging out some up there at Paradigm this year. I mean, really. It's become a thing that we look forward to most at uh, Paradigm Symposium. And my friends, I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Grand America Show. That was our chat with Micah Hanks, the mouth of the South. Yeah, that was a fun one. It's late here now in the igloo. What? Yeah, you turning into a pumpkin soon? I am at midnight. <laughs> You've already. I'm already a pumpkin. <laughs> You're already a pumpkin. <sighs> yeah, no, I want to thank Micah for coming on. Uh, I finally got the chance to talk to him about his ghost uh, rocket book. And look forward to seeing him on Sunday morning at the Paradigm Symposium. Wonder what time Sunday morning? Probably like eight thirty or nine. Now you got to take a cab over there. What? Because now it it's not in the same place. Right? Oh shit! Right, it's a little walk away. Yeah, it's only a walk. I think it's we're pretty close. Not looking good. Not looking good for you, buddy. <laughs> Your first lecture you see is usually around noon. Yeah, I'm a noon guy. <laughs> Uh, anyways, we're talking about the Paradigm Symposium 2014. I, we, I, keep, I feel like we keep rambling on about it, but we're kind of a pseudo-sponsor there, and we're going to have the Yeti there hopefully talking to some people like Eric Von Daniken and maybe Graham Hancock, and uh, we might even get a chance to catch up with Dennis McKenna there. Yeah, yeah, hopefully record another little ditty with them. Yeah. So uh, we want to thank everybody for uh, listening, and uh, send your emails to graham at grahamerica.com, G-R-A-H-A-M feedback and synchronicities or ideas guests yeah review, guest requests review the show wherever you can um tweet us at America, like the facebook page and of course check out the show notes you'll find the links to everything we talked about and uh, all the music right on buddy that's it anything else oh, that should be it hit, hit up the money bomb yeah please help us out donate to the show Bye.